I'm sorry I didn't have this done beforehand. I got to talking and didn't put my microphone back on. Anyway, good to see you and good morning. Um, my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Tim Udodge leading us in worship. Uh, I want to say welcome to the Brigettes, and I've known them for years now, and it's great to have Richard praying for his grandson. And uh, I, I envy your voice, Richard. I really do. And, and your height. Uh. But uh, this is Palm Sunday. I think you know that by now. And here at Downtown Prez, we, we don't follow all the church calendar, but we hit some of the high points and, uh, you know, so-called Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday and then going to Easter. It's definitely a highlight. And so we're going to take a break from Romans. And uh, I want to look at a different book this morning, or, fr- or from a different book. We're going to be in First Peter this morning, First Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. And if you don't have a Bible handy, you can just follow there in the bulletin. 1 Peter 2, verse 19. At the summer camp where I I worked when I was in college as a counselor, and uh, actually the same summer camp that my my boys go to, Alpine Camp, um, it's the practice that usually at the end of the day, the counselor, the counselors will have a little you know, quick devotional for the boys before they go to bed, and they'll read a passage or a verse or something by a Christian writer and talk about it. And um, I vividly remember when uh, that summer I worked there that a friend of mine shared what happened the night before when he did the devotion in his cabin. He had, I don't know if he came to camp with it or he just got his hands on it when he was at camp, but he had a detailed account of the physical sufferings of Jesus the night that he was arrested and taken into custody and and beaten and abused and then scourged the next day and then crucified. And there's several things like this that have been written by medical doctors where they've they've looked at it scientifically, what would happen to your body if you just went through the things that the gospel narratives record. So he read one of these versions to the campers to say, man, think about what Jesus suffered. And one of the boys in his cabin was not from a church background. And so he he was not familiar with this info, and so it really struck him. And he said, just hearing how bad it was, he said, what did he do wrong? And one of the other, before the counselor could respond, one of the other campers said, he didn't do anything wrong. And just the simplicity of that and the the freshness of that and the truth of that just really struck my friend. It may, may strike you even as I say it. Um, Palm Sunday, I, as Tim explained, we, we remember Jesus riding in Jerusalem. Lots of celebration, lots of welcome on the front end. Um, awful ending to the week. And sometimes we are so quick to run to what was accomplished on the cross that we bypass something that Peter talks about in this passage. That's why I wanted to look at this at this passage. And, and, and hear me loud and clear, every Sunday to some degree, we're, we're talking about and grappling with and trying to apply what did Jesus accomplish on that cross? What does that mean for you and me right now? And I'm going to do some more of that this morning. But Peter's making this point. Think, don't bypass that part about he didn't do anything wrong. He was treated... He absorbed... The, the abuse of the Jewish world and the Roman world of his day, and he didn't do anything wrong. 
What does that mean for people who follow him? 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, you are the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, the one who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So who could we need more than you? Who could we cry out to more humbly and yet more confidently than to you? Uh, Please help us. There's nothing like these, your words, but we need your help to understand them, to see them, to hear them, to take them into our insides, to apply them. So would you enable us to do so? Open our hearts, open our ears. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. My fourth year in college, which was my first senior year of two, uh, I I was a business major, and I um, was taking a class called Business Ethics. It was kind of a core business class, and it was a very philosophical kind of class. The only other class I'd had like that was Intro to Philosophy, my first year, and then nothing like that, in this very philosophical class, readings on ethics and everything. And uh, the teacher was an atheist. And there's atheists of all different kinds of personalities, backgrounds, and, and how they uh, let you know or don't let you know about their atheism. Some are very low-key. Some are in-your-face. He was more of the latter. He was more in-your-face about it. And that was his reputation, especially with Christians. And it's Mississippi, lots of... Bible belters, so he, he dials it up. So anyway, the first day of class, he, uh, he was laying out the, the expectations of the class, and he said that part of your grade will be class participation. You've got to do the test, you need to show up for class, but you know, I need to know your name by the end of this class because you're verbally participating in the, in the discussions. So I thought about that, and I thought, okay, I, I want to do that as part of my grade, but I'm going to be myself. And I, I feel like I need to let him know, hey, if I respond from a Christian point of view about something, I'm not trying to be a lightning rod. I'm not trying to preach to you. I'm just being myself, and I'm trying to, you know, have a good grade. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just go talk to him about it. So during his office hours, I went by his office and just essentially said to him what I said to you. And I thought, you know, this is a great idea. I'm being proactive. I'm being preemptive. And it, it didn't go well. And... 
I, uh, he, he kind of laid into me, and by the end of it, it ended up that I, I had to do more work because of what I'd said to him really, than almost anyone in the class. And so I just I felt miffed, and I complained to my friends about it and just kind of you know, indignant about the whole thing. And I look back on that now, and I think that was, it was naive. And to some degree, it was biblically illiterate of me. Not, not to go, I think I did need to go, but to be so, so, you know, indignant about it. When the Bible is very clear about the fact that that should not surprise you. And that's not to throw him under the bus, it's just to say, uh, I mean, Jesus was very frank with his followers. If they hated me, they will hate you. Now, here's the thing about this passage. It, 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 you could tell it talks about suffering, right? But it's a particular kind of suffering that Peter's talking about. And the context is, in the second chapter of 1 Peter, he's doing something that Paul does in his letters. He's kind of like going around the different parts of a Christian community, and he's applying the gospel. He's applying the Christian life. So what does this mean for husbands? What does this mean for wives? What does this mean for children? What does this mean for masters? And on this part, he's talking to slaves. Now, the issue that I don't want to get into this morning is, well, how could there be the presence of slavery in the, in the New Testament? What do we think about that? I mean, part of what we have to say is the apostles are addressing the real world they live in. And in their real world, in these churches, there are slaves. So what does the gospel mean for them? I mean, it's valuing them to say, what is the Christian life for you? And that's this passage. But I want you to notice something. Look in verse 19 where we started. Peter says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now that word one is important because in Greek it's just kind of the catch-all term for if someone, whoever. In other words, I'm applying this initially to, to slaves in this church or churches that follow Christ, but what I'm talking about applies to any Christian anywhere who's suffering in this way. What kind of suffering is he talking about in the passage? Well, there's all kinds of suffering. Like, we live in a messed up world. And, and we're messed up. And sometimes I suffer because I've made mistakes. Sometimes I suffer because there's a world with death and loss and disease and poverty. Scripture addresses that a ton. That's all through the Psalms. But the kind of suffering he's talking about in this passage is particular. It's when someone that you're tied to, especially someone in authority, that's just built into your life, is you're suffering under them. This could be a boss. This could be a supervisor. This could be a spouse. Another family member. It actually could be an employee just because of how closely knit you are. And it's suffering as a follower of Jesus. So it's not just the wear and tear of a world with disease and loss and all that kind of... It's suffering as a Christian unfairly, unjustly. That's the kind of suffering he's talking about. This passage uses the verb or the noun, suffer, four times. After this passage, in the rest of 1 Peter, he talks about suffer or suffering ten different times. What, what, what is Peter saying 
in this letter, when you follow Christ, you do suffer. And this was not an abstraction for him. We'll talk about that more in a second. So where he points us first is not to uh, look at your own suffering and be a friend of someone else who's suffering. The first place he points us is Jesus and his suffering. The very thing we celebrate this week. So let's look at two things. First off, Christ's sufferings and then Christ's provision. All right? Christ's sufferings and then Christ's provision. Now, on the sufferings, I want you to notice a couple of things. First, the nature of Christ's sufferings, and then His response to His sufferings. So the nature of it, and then His response. The, uh, the nature of it. What, what did He go through? Now, this is important. Peter points out in verse 22 something you've got to know for the application to make sense. Verse 22. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. In other words, when Jesus suffered, it was not because of His sin. It was not because of lovelessness. It was not because He did something illegal. You know, Peter's going to connect the dots to us and say, Hey, look, if you suffer, don't let it be for doing evil. You know, don't be a Christian who robs from somebody and then you get arrested and you're roughed up, you know, or whatever, and you're put in jail and you're going like, Well, there you go, Christians suffer. He would say, no, at this point you're not suffering as a Christian. You're suffering as a criminal. Jesus had no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth his whole life. As a child, as a teenager, as a man. So where did that get him? Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Verbal mistreatment. Physical mistreatment. Peter says here when he suffered, and if this is the only passage we had, we we wouldn't know a lot of what that involves, but if you get the Gospels out, and this would be a great week to do this, and just read the last few chapters of any of the Gospels about the actual things that were done to Jesus, and these verbs just start to pop. Arrested. Slapped. Struck. Uh, a reed is taken. And he's hit in the head with this reed. He's spit upon. He's scourged. He's whipped. The, Romans, the Roman flogging that by itself was potentially fatal. He's crucified. Verbal. Physical. Now, before we go any further, I, I feel like I've got to say this. Sometimes Christian preachers and Christian teachers can say a version of this, something along the lines of, hey, look, God is calling you and me into a higher level of obedience. He is calling us to obey in ways that we never have, and He's going to take us to new levels of blessing that we've never experienced. And what that can, I think the way that can land, especially in Americans, is, wow, God's going to work in me. I'm going to become this more obedient person person, and it's just going to kind of open up all these different containers of things that I want for my life. Like, my family's going to get better. My finances are going to get better. My happiness will increase when I obey more. Jesus obeyed perfectly and suffered. Very important. Now, what was his response to verbal and physical suffering? 
Go back to verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. All right, so number one, the response is what he doesn't do. What does he not do? He doesn't retaliate. You know, we mentioned this last week that he says to Peter when Peter cuts the ear off this guy when they come for Jesus to arrest him with the big crowd. Jesus says to Peter, Look, I I could ask my father for 12 legions of angels. He would send them like that. One of these angels would wipe out Judea. But he doesn't cash in on that. He doesn't trash talk back. He doesn't accuse back. He's silent before his accusers. What does he do? Now look at the rest of verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This translation, continued entrusting himself, that's a really good translation. Because in the original, that verb is in the imperfect And the imperfect is how you express continued action, which means this, not at one just isolated point in his life, but over and over and over, day in, day out, hour after hour, Jesus absorbed what he did not deserve. And he entrusted himself to his Father. It's not the verb for trust or to exercise faith. It's a verb of handing one's life over and sort of letting it go, saying, you handle it. As one who's fully God, he had the power to unleash righteously on his attackers. What you and I don't have when we feel like unleashing on somebody. He had the right to do it as creator, as perfect man. He absorbs pain. He absorbs suffering. But he does do something. He commits his life to his father and says, as a real man, as a son to his father, Father, you'll have to handle this. I trust myself to you. That was his suffering. What's his provision? And it's a lot. Uh, I I want to point out a few things. First off, look in verse 21. It says, "For, For to this you have been called... Now just pause for a second and let that wash over you. We talk about different callings in life, vocation, your work life. I was called to this kind of work. I was called to be a teacher. I was called to be an artist. I was called to be an attorney, whatever. Or or a calling in family. I'm called to be a mom or a dad, whatever. The Christian's calling is to suffer. Jesus calls to us and says, come suffer. And never played that down. Very honest about it. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, now get this, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. two, Two different images. He says, He left you an example. That word in the original is the term for what a a Greek speaking child would be given when he or she was learning their alphabet and you would have a little guide. Apparently there were four Greek words, and if you knew those words, you knew all the letters in the Greek alphabet. And you would take your guide, and you'd put something over it, and you would trace your letters. And that's how you'd learn how, you'd learn how to be a Greek writer. Learn your alphabet. And Peter says this, Look, we have been left something to trace our life over about how to suffer, how to show the gospel 
for how you suffer. And it's the life of Jesus. So just put your life over that. And you know, when I was studying for this, I never, never knew that's what that term meant. At first I went, that's really awesome. And then I went, oh dear. Because I hate suffering. And I'm mad at people that treat me. <laughs> you know, if, if I go through unjust suffering. And I, it's awful. And what Peter is saying is, hey, Brian, hey, followers of Christ, take your emotions. Take your will. Take the thoughts that are churning in your head and put them over his life, particularly the suffering, and trace your life. Which is both amazing and potentially discouraging because we don't suffer well. So how is this good news? And of course, Peter as a guy who like loved good news and needed good news, gives us good news. Where's the good news? Look in verse 24. And before I read this, I, think about this. Very famous hymn, Rock of Ages, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And then there's a reference to Good Friday. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, soldiers with the spear, pierced Jesus' side, water and blood, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. You ever thought about what does that mean? It's actually explained in the next line. The work of Christ is the double cure for sin. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That it was the work of Jesus on the cross, not just to... It's what we sung about earlier. Not just to take... Everything that makes us guilty, past, present, and future, the stuff we haven't done yet, to take it on Himself, who had no sin, and for justice to fall on Him from God, the wrath of God to fall on Him for us when we deserved it, so that it's paid for. He not only does that, but the New Testament talks about when He did that, He broke the power of sin in His people's lives. Look in verse 24. Both of these are there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's a reference to Isaiah. And healed in Isaiah is not so much your physical ailments. Although when Jesus comes back, that will all be fixed too. But it is the healing of the inner man. By his wounds you have been healed. The power of sin has been broken. What does that mean? Does that mean that Christians always respond the right way to crummy suffering? No. Take it from me. What it means is that now we actually can change. Before we could not change. Now we can change. What does it look like to flesh that out? First thing is this, look, in, look back in verses 19 and 20 where we started it off. It says, for this is a gracious thing. And literally, in the original it says, this is grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It sure doesn't feel gracious. But what is it talking about? When I absorb suffering and I don't give retaliation, 
I give honor. I give love of neighbor. I give calm. I bear the fruit of the Spirit. When I do that, I'm giving the person what he or she doesn't deserve. What am I giving that person? Grace. Where does it come from? I've been the recipient of it. You know, and if the psalmist had not said, our, if the psalmist had said, our cup is full to the brim, it would be a risky endeavor. Like, ah, I've got a full cup, but can I spare this on you, awful supervisor? But our cup overflows. It overflows with the love and the mercy of God. I have received great mercy. Who am I to wield punishment? When Christ paid for my punishment. The DNA of what Peter's talking about is not punishment. We haven't received punishment from God because of the work of Christ. And, very important, when you and I go through suffering, there's going to be this thing inside of us that feels like, you know what, okay, there you go, God is punishing me. If you believe in Christ, and He said it's finished, it's finished. He disciplines us as a father in all kinds of ways, seen and unseen. But when we go through suffering, that's not His punishment. He is still our gracious God, being gracious to us. We are able to extend grace when we suffer unjustly. That is so counterintuitive. Let's think about verbal. Suffering under verbal mishandling. What if you work for someone who's incredibly unreasonable, and besides the fact that they're unreasonable and they're volatile and you never know what mood they're going to be in when you come into work, let's say that they really misrepresent you to other people when you've done good work. And you know what all of us want to do? It's like we want to put together some kind of dinner meeting for everyone that knows that supervisor and us and like kind of have a PowerPoint display and go, all right, let's walk through how I've been misrepresented here. It really started in January, if you'll look at the slide number 17 and, and your handouts. That can't touch the way the scribes misrepresented Jesus. He breaks the law. No, he's God who gave the law. And as a man kept it perfectly. Everything you're saying is a lie. And he never explodes on them that way. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we always will give grace. It means that now by the power of the cross we can. Second thing is this. um, Why would we do that? This pa- it, let me put it this way. If we absorb suffering because we're afraid of people, that's not what this passage commends. If we, if we absorb suffering because we're afraid of people, because we want them to like us back, or we're just cowardly, that's not what this, pa- what this passage commends. Why would you extend grace to someone who so richly doesn't deserve it? Of course, all grace is undeserved. Verse 19. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows. Mindful of God. I heard a story not long ago of a man. He and his wife were in one of the um, death camps during World War II, the Jewish couple. And she died in the camp and he survived. And he said that for the rest of his life, He was very conscious of how he lived, how he treated people, 
because he acutely felt that his wife was watching him. So when he could be dishonest, he wanted to be honest. When he could be an angry neighbor, he wanted to be a kind neighbor because he felt that his wife was watching him. He was mindful of his wife's presence, whether that was true or not. It affected his life here and now. Peter says this, look, if, if you're afraid of people and you can't stand up to others, that's not the thing I'm commending. What I'm commending, what I'm calling you to, is for you and I to be mindful of God. That if God gave me what's fair, it would destroy me. And I've got this Lord Jesus that He sent, His own Son. And His, and his Son says, follow me. But what did the passage say? The Son walks into suffering. And we're called to do what? Follow in His footsteps. It's almost like somebody's showing you a path. And don't think like nice, Paris Mountain, you know, well-groomed path. Think just awful thorns and overgrowth and, you know, pointed sticks. And you're wearing t-shirt and shorts. Don't even have long sleeves or pants. And you're being called to go in there, and you're looking at it, and you're going, okay, but I'll, it'll hurt. Yeah, it'll hurt. But if you'll follow Him, it'll end in glory. But if you follow in His steps, you'll suffer. That is the way of Christ. That's what we're called to. If we are mindful of God, we know that this is not Him punishing me, nor does it earn me anything. This is His gracious way for me that will end in glory. Even though it's unfair and painful now. Last thing. Uh, you know, it's interesting when you read a book, especially a novel, to see how the author might insert himself or herself a little bit into the story. Um, I've only read maybe four or five John Grisham novels. It's a shameful thing to say as a Mississippian, but it's true, only four or five. And it seems like there's always a character in John Grisham novels who's the like young, rakishly handsome young attorney, you know, that like whenever he steps into an office, all the secretaries are flirting with him. And I've kind of wondered, is that John Grisham thinking that's him? Is he like does is that what John thinks of John? I've never asked him, but uh, I don't know. What's interesting to me is how writers in the New Testament will put themselves in in unflattering ways. I mean, for years, for years, I was a Christian, and I never noticed that when you're reading in the Gospel of Matthew, you're just kind of going right, kind of early in Matthew, you're going right along, and it talks about there's this tax collector named Levi. There's a guy who's a sellout to the Romans, and he's overcharging his kinsmen for money. Somebody, you know, somebody not loved in his community. His name Levi, and Jesus said, come follow me. It was years before I looked up and went, that's Matthew. He's, he's writing about himself. He put himself, he's, he's, I mean, it's a true account, but there he is. Not flattering. Uh, where's Peter in this? Look, look at the last verse. It says, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, the night that Jesus was arrested, what we call Maundy Thursday, 
right before Peter denied Jesus, in, in Luke's account, Jesus said to him, I've prayed for you, Peter, because Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. That's when Peter said, I, I would never deny you. And he denies them. And before even the denial that we know about, Jesus has said, you're all going to scatter. They said, no, no, we're not going to scatter. We always throw Peter under the bus. They all said, no, we won't do that to you. They scattered. And when that happened, Jesus said, this is fulfilling a prophecy. One of the Old Testament prophets said, strike the shepherd. And the sheep will scatter. And they did. Uh, it is strangely encouraging that here is this man all these years later. He uses the same Greek verb. Returned in this passage is the same Greek verb as in Luke. And Peter says this, You were straying, but you, you turned to your shepherd and your overseer. He uses the New Testament titles for elders of Jesus, that you have done what I did. I wanted to avoid suffering so bad I denied Jesus. He said, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers, and he turned me back. And here he is writing, strengthening the brothers. Uh, You and I are going to encounter suffering. Sometimes we're going to handle it well, and sometimes we're going to be absolutely crummy at it because we believe that we deserve awesome things every day. When we mishandle suffering, we have a sin-bearing Savior who's already taken care of it. But in all our suffering, we can always turn to our suffering elder brother, our suffering pastor shepherd. And he handles it. We can entrust ourselves to him and say, I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to say the thing I really want to say. I'm not going to do the vindictive thing I really want to do. I'm going to give grace because you're king and you'll handle it and I'm in your hands. That's a gracious thing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know that we do not want to suffer. We don't want to suffer from sickness. We don't want to suffer from bad news. We don't want to suffer from our own mistakes. And we don't want to suffer at the hands of others unfairly. Have mercy on us. We who are poor sufferers. Would you give us such a rich remembrance and experience of your grace that we can extend it to others even with joy. And in so doing, show them the gospel of how we've been dealt with. We ask in your name. Amen.